Alrighty, good afternoon everyone. Thank you for coming. This is Restoring Hope, the treatment of pelvic pain across the gender spectrum. And we have our awesome faculty, Dr. Sandy Hilton. Take it away. That's great. Thank you. Really love that you guys are still here and still awake. I know that's hard in Vegas after many days. If you wanted to not make me have to do this across the room, you could come together in the middle or I'll just work it. Um, so how many of you work with pelvic, people who are experiencing pelvic issues now? Excellent. Um, I'm gonna say, how many of you work with people? Because you are working with people who have pelvic issues, but you might not be aware of it. Um, they might not be talking to you about it, but the statistics say that, that most women, um, about 33 to 35% of women end up with some sort of incontinence episode over their lifetime. That doesn't mean they're stuck with it. It just means they go through it. Um, the prevalence of pelvic pain is high in men and women. And with a, a growing transgender population, there are issues that you might not even know about. Um, which is why the name of the talk is Across the Gender Spectrum. And as my disclosures go, I do own a physical therapy practice where I treat persistent pain and about half to 75% of my caseload is pelvic issues. Men and women and the transgender community and people that identify themselves as neither sex, gender, I get that wrong still. After 29 years as a physical therapist, I still have a problem with getting pronouns right for people when they have um, a specific way they would want to be addressed to. I still sometimes get it wrong when I ask a question about, tell me your, your sexual practices, and I lead it in a way that would make a man assume that I thought he was having sexual relations with a woman when he wasn't. And those little missteps early in the beginning of your interaction with a person can set the path that they're gonna talk to you about um, and may or may not share things that are pertinent to their care if they are sensing judgment or a lack of understanding from you. Um, so I'm hoping in this talk to be able to get you to, to get a little more comfortable with the possibilities that are out there um, and understand also why it matters. Uh, so I, I do own my own clinic uh, and I wrote a little book on why pelvic pain hurts that the joke goes if you all bought a book I could buy a coffee um, but we do get royalties for it so you need to, to understand it. Um, and the, the photos in here are, are legal. I just came off a rotation where I was a program chair for a very large conference. And one of the things we fought really hard on was properly crediting studies and people's intellectual property and photographs and graphs. So I'm a little sticky about that. So I'm hoping at the end of this talk that what you guys will walk out with is an understanding of why a biopsychosocial approach, specifically with working with people with pelvic pain, is not only a good idea, but critical to successful treatment. Um, and also defining a little bit about central sensitization or central pain states and how that applies specifically to the pelvic health population. And looking at a new framework, uh, a concept or a set of principles that is designed to uh, help a person with pelvic pain get through their predicament um, in ways that are less threatening and less painful. Uh, some of the techniques that are out there in themselves for use in pelvic health are painful. And it's really hard for a person to be consistent with treatment if they leave the treatment feeling worse than when they came. Um, so we have some ideas about that. 
and listing in that some options to target both the peripheral and central nervous system for ways we can make it better. The, from a global perspective, pelvic pain in men and women is a massive financial and social burden. Um, and I put men and women on there to remind me to say, if I do that in my intake forms at my clinic, since I treat pelvic health, there are people who do not identify as either gender who are already feeling like they can't talk to me well. Because by having that on there, there's a portion of the population that I've already made look at my stuff and go, mm, you don't really get it. And it's, that's a subtle but very important difference. What we know about pelvic pain is that it's not based so much on your age. Young, young people have pelvic pain issues and old people have pelvic pain issues and everyone in the middle. And it's not based on the sex that you were gendered, sex that you were identified with when you were born or the gender that you identify with. Um, so I like my little picture of the people that are people because that's who we help in pelvic pain and pelvic health clinics is people. The impact of pelvic pain from a social perspective, so I said it was going to be a biopsychosocial talk, from a social perspective is their ability to go to work to many places now, at least in Chicago where I live, are okay if you have a desk job but you have a standing desk and you can alternate sitting and standing. The advent of that and the acceptability of that in the workplace has made people who used to not be able to work now go to work. But it's not quite normal if they feel like they have to do that up and down because they can only tolerate 10 minutes of standing or 10 minutes of sitting. It's getting better. The social aspects of people who will just choose not to go out. Um, you are in a pelvic health class, so I can say I'm going to talk about peeing and pooping and, and incontinence and sexual dysfunction. Um, you hear a lot in the news and in your clinic of people with urinary incontinence, but there is also a concern with fecal incontinence. And one of the things that will keep you out of work and out of any social engagement is feeling like you're going to have a loss of stool and not know anything about it because it smells bad and you can't hide it. And it's ingrained in us that that's absolutely horrible. So that matters and it will keep people inside. Urinary incontinence will keep people inside. Pain will keep people inside. And then they're missing those social interactions that we know and have heard, you guys heard all week about resilience and how important it is for social contact and social interaction. Um, it, it's a huge impact on the quality of someone's life. And if you're hurting, your ability to do self-care defined not as can you get dressed, which can be hard enough if you can't tolerate having clothes on, um, but can you sleep well? Can you think clearly enough to go shopping and buy the food that is going to give you healthy nutrition for what you need to do to support yourself? Can you take the time to do things that are happy? Can you even remember what being happy feels like? One of the fun questions to ask someone who has been in persistent pain, and by fun I mean challenging, um, is what do you do to have fun? And the look of just blankness on people's faces, what do you do for joy, is that they've forgotten how to do that, and that's a really important part of self-care. When we look at 
the biopsychosocial perspective for pain and what we know is important, we can look at the global perspective, but we can also take that down as an N of one or the person sitting in front of you. There is some controversy about that of whether, um, you've probably heard it, of people saying, well, I know that the, that the evidence says that, that there's only a small effect for manual therapy, but I know that in my clinic, when I treat people and I do my manual therapy technique, they get much better. So sometimes you'll have health practitioners that say, the evidence doesn't matter so much. I can just go by that N of one in front of me because the studies weren't done on my patient. And it's, I think, an understandable way of, of working through the frustration of wanting to help that person in front of you. But it's also a, might be tripping us up a little as healthcare providers in, in getting lost in things that may not, when you put that back into prevalence and population health questions, may not be the right track. So it's a controversy in the literature. It's a controversy in the, in the, the um, discussions of how to teach people, patients, how to take care of themselves, is what, what do we mean? And can I take the body of literature on biopsychosocial health and apply that to the single person in front of me? I think that we should. And I think that the groups like Cause Health in England that are doing a lot of work on educating the public and educating providers and how to take the body of literature and apply it to that single person are an, out, uh, an outstanding way to apply literature. When they go a little further than that and say the biopsychosocial model or the neuromatrix model is an outdated construct, I think that, that that's a conversation we should have as well. Um, why do I care in pelvic health? Because the body of evidence helps me figure out what direction to go to help my patients when the pelvic-specific literature is lacking there. And that is not a dig on the researchers that do pelvic research. That's an understanding that research is slow, asking a good question is hard, and getting it to apply to your population takes some time. But my patients who have testicular pain and would like to have sex again do not have the time to wait for the research to be done. So there's a push-pull to that. Um, and I think as me as a physical therapist working in the clinic, I work pretty strongly sometimes in techniques and concepts that have not been tested by evidence. Uh, I aim for biological plausibility. Uh, one of the problems, is anyone here, I, it took me a while to be able to pronounce this word, anyone here familiar with the concept of mirological fallacies? Corey. Um, it's the, I, I, like I said, I had to look it up. There's an entire large practice of, of literature on it. Um, and it's that word we do when I say that my stomach's hungry. It's not really my stomach that's hungry, it's me that's hungry. Um, when we say um, things like the, my, my brain is making me hurt, it's not really my brain that's making me hurt, it's me that's making me hurt. So there are some word uses that are challenging. And I want to acknowledge the fact that I, I understand, and I'm going to say a lot of things about the brain, and I'm going to say a lot of things about different body parts, but I, I know that that's because it makes it easier to communicate with people. If I spent my time saying, well, you are in pain, the person might think I had really lost my mind because it's hard to speak from that perspective. And that's why I have it with elephants, because much like 
the joke about um, if you had people that couldn't see feeling different parts of an elephant, they would be describing it dramatically differently. But when you put it all together, it, it makes more sense. So be a little patient with my words as I go through this, because I know it's the whole person, and I know that we're treating the biopsycho and social all as one word. But occasionally, for conversation, I'll break it down. So the scope of dealing with pelvic pain comes back to using actually good validated questionnaires to get an idea of what the person is going through. The Oswestry Low Back Pain Disability Questionnaire is old. It's still exceptionally valid. And if you're working in any um, non-pelvic health field, but you want to get an idea of what someone's going through, that's a really good question questionnaire to use if you use the original. Because in 2001, it was revalidated in the States to remove the sex question which is a biopsychosocial problem all of itself. That means that there was some researchers who felt strongly enough that asking sex on a questionnaire was awkward and uncomfortable that they went to the time and money to revalidate a questionnaire without it. Um, so whenever I do a talk, I include that and say, please, if you're using that in the, in the clinic, get rid of it and go back to the original because it asks about sex in back pain. And what that does, besides being a red flag for cotoquinus syndromes and some really good things you should know, it also puts in that person's head, do you mean it's not supposed to hurt when I have sex? Because there's a fair amount of people that think that pain with sex is somewhat normal. And it is no, normal, no more normal than leaking when you jump or cough or laugh or sneeze. Uh, it may happen often, but it is normal. And there are things that can be done about it. The Erebro and the Fremantle back pain questionnaire are also really handy. They give you good information of what the scope of uh, problem is for that person. The pain catastrophizing scale is my favorite full time. If I was only allowed one form that I could use with my patient population, it would be the PCS. And I have a case study in here later that I will show you why that is. Um, and then there are pelvic specific functional outcome scales and there is a new quality of life scale uh, that just came out of Australia for pelvic health there, or female pelvic pain and they're doing one for male pelvic pain is in process and that's fantastic because that gives you a very clear indication into that person's life of what functional problems they're having. Um, I did ask the lady who's developing the male one if she's planning on doing one for uh, people who do not identify as either gender or transgender because once we start gendering our forms then we go back to that What are we going to do? Um, but I understand for science we need boundaries uh, And that is something that I tell my patients is that sometimes just up front You're going to get handouts from me or you're going to see educational information from me that doesn't really fit your lifestyle and doesn't really fit your concept of who you are and I just apologize for that um, that's going to be a conversation we have more and more. In the world of pelvic pain and why I have back issues on there is that there are so many comorbidities within the, the human that is experiencing pain. It, bowel, bladder, low back, hip girdle, pelvic organ prolapses, and pregnancy is on there as a comorbidity, not because I think of pregnancy as a disease or a dysfunction, but it is a hard thing for a female body to go through. Uh, in a relatively short period of time, and birth, whether that's vaginal or with a C-section, makes some pretty dramatic changes in that body. 
most women recover quite well. Not all. And they need help. Some countries do that better than the US. Um, France is always held up as the kind of gold standard because women have uh, six week, I believe, checkups uh, with a physiotherapist that's going to go look and make sure their pelvic floor is functioning well. Uh, we don't do that quite so consistently here in the States, but there are doctors all around this country that are doing a fantastic job of trying to reach out to women who are having problem after pregnancy and get them the help that they need. That's the other reason that we have these talks in places where it's not just a lot of pelvic health physios or OB-GYNs is because we want the rest of the population to understand it's important. People will get on, and it was mentioned earlier today about Dr. Google. People will get on and check on Dr. Google to find out the names of what's going on that might describe their pain. And there are a lot of them. Now, if you think, sitting in your chair, if you guys could sit up in your version of your best posture, mostly I want to laugh and see if you change. Thanks for not. Um, if you, pretty good anatomy, just slide your hand on the back side of you and feel your sacrum, your tailbone. And then put your other hand on the front at your pubic bone. In between your hands would be the pelvic anatomy. It's not much space. It's about the size of your hand. That's a lot of different names for a very small region of the body. And it can be very confusing to patients, um, especially if in the process of trying to figure out why it hurts when they sit, or why they can't have sex without hurting, or why um, they have left testicular pain and no one can tell them why, and they've been on rounds of antibiotics and it's not any better, uh, they go looking. I want everyone to understand a little rudimental what is happening in there so that they can answer those questions and make people not afraid. Um, this is a, a female. This is a, a Canadian physiotherapist drew these pictures and I, I bought the rights to use them in my talks because I think they're absolutely beautiful and, and graceful and poetic and they don't look scary. Um, but it gives an a, a artistic rendition of what the levator group of muscles are, the lift, everyone says do a kegel. That's part of the system that's working. Um, and also an idea that, that there's really not much space in there. The other thing I like to tell my patients is that, the, that everything snuggles right up against each other. And if you are constipated, it's going to make it uncomfortable to have sex for most people. There's not much room in there if there is stool in your rectum. And that might not be an issue with sex. That might be an issue with constipation. And, and maybe let's fix that first. So it's important that we take a look at how everything's interrelated. And that would be true for men and women. You're thinking, no, Sandy, women don't have vaginas. I know that. But not all men have sex with women. And that sometimes gets left out of discussions, too. So. You have to ask, if you're working in public health, you need to get used to asking questions that are open-ended about, tell me about if you're having any problems with intimacy, and then try really hard not to lead them into who you think they might be having intimacy with, because you might miss things. There was just an article out of Canada about some statistics that, about how many men do not disclose that they are having anal sex um, when they go in for, for urological assessments or any pain assessments. It's, I, I want to say it was 25%, but I might, it might be higher. Um, the, 
but the concept of there's, there's people out there that have problems that are not disclosing it because they are afraid that they will be not helped, shamed, kicked out of offices, things like that, uh, is distressing to me. And I know it happens. Um, that's, again, we can do better. Um, men have pelvic floors too. Uh, Meryl, if you were at Meryl's session yesterday, she did a beautiful job of describing that, that she used women as an example in it, but it's like the muscles are the same, their shape and orientation are different. The functions are the same for the most part. And if someone has had transgender, gender reassignment surgery, they are still biologically, um, hormonally, for some parts of it, the way they came out when they were born. Why does that matter? Because if you can have a male patient in front of you that may have endometriosis, you can have a female patient in front of you that may have some issues that were related to the heavy testosterone load as they were growing. And it's hard. Um, there is a growing number of, of MDs that are exceptionally skilled at this. And as a physical therapist that works in pelvic health, I have thrown myself into the community to find them because I, that's not my job. And I need to know where that border is so that I can say, I understand this person in front of me has problems. They're not resolving like I thought they would. I know a little bit of their history. Let me get them to a doctor that can maybe delve into the hormonal issues that are part of this and might be driving some problems that are not resolving. The big part of that, if you didn't catch it, is people should be getting better. If they're not getting better, we need to refer them to find out who can help them. Because I expect when someone comes to me with pelvic pain that we can resolve most of their issues. I will never tell anyone that I think they can be pain-free forever, um, but I do think that we can get people back to good function. And it's people. So how do we do that? What can be done for that? We can assess pelvic muscle function. Meryl went over that beautifully yesterday. Uh, uh, that is ideally an internal vaginal or rectal examination. Some people refuse. I can help them anyway but it just gives me more information if I can do an internal assessment. Some people refuse to even let you do a visual external assessment, because that would be my next level of knowledge. Um, and that's okay, we can help them too. It's just you're gonna have a little bit less information to go to, and how I explain that to my patients is that if I, if I am only doing external clothes on, then there's a little bit of reasoned guessing going on. But if I can do an internal assessment, then I can know a little more. If I can do an external visualization of what's going on when you contract or relax your muscles, I can do a little more. But always, it's at the patient's permission, and they have the ability to revoke that at any time. Um, the other thing that is that is that I will never do an assessment that is painful because I don't need to. And I can say that because I'm a physical therapist, and I have fantastic physicians who do the screening out of things that need to be done. And even though I can see people without having been to a doctor first, people with persistent pelvic pain or urological issues or bleeding or things, they're going to go get screened by an appropriate medical professional before I work with them. So I wanna be really clear of that is that this is musculoskeletal pain rehab. It is not 
what I consider medicine from a urologist or your gynecologist. Um, and there is a huge difference for that. We have to work as a team in this population. So I'm going to do my um, pelvic muscle assessment, but I'm also going to then identify structures or activity that might reproduce the shade of their symptoms. It was said earlier this week that we're not going to try and fully reproduce their symptoms because we're not. Um, if I'm asking, you're leaking when you're jumping for a, a hard CrossFit workout, we're not going to do a hard CrossFit workout in the clinic. And if you're having pain during intercourse, you're also not doing that in the clinic. So there is a bit of trust of if you tell me these are your symptoms, I believe you, but I should be able to get a little bit of something um, that might tell us we're heading in the right direction. And then we're going to take that information and develop a program to address it. And I call that basic physical therapy 101 of here are your problems. This is what's not helping you, working for you. Here's a path to get you better. And most importantly, they're going to help me decide what that endpoint is and what it looks like. So this is what um, Carolyn Van Dyken up in Canada and I came up with some time ago of when we do our assessment, we're looking at trying to get a, figure out the balance between what's tissue dysfunction, what's not moving well, too stiff, not relaxing, not contracting, um, can't feel it, there might be some sensory loss, things that are, are very clearly musculoskeletal. And how much of that symptom that I'm seeing is from central pain states, from top-down dysregulation or facilitation of the nervous system? How much of that is that they're scared that I might be touching them and reproducing some pain? Um, how much of that is a belief that they can't ever get better? Sometimes because someone's told them that. And we assess that in our treatment. And then what we do is say, all right, let's say from the functional outcome measures and my physical assessment and talking to you, I'm going to assume that you're about you know, 25% central pain mechanisms and about 75% peripheral drivers. Then the program gets developed in relationship to that. And they're doing a lot of work on the tissues, but they're also doing some maybe some meditative practice, maybe some breathing for relaxation practice, maybe some of the resilience building tools that you've heard of this week to support what they're doing, to change their mind about how they think about how they are. Um, and Or if they seem like I can't, the muscles are great, they can feel when I touch them, I can't make anything hurt, not that I'm trying to, but nothing hurts. And um, there doesn't seem to be much musculoskeletal problem, they might get a little bit for resilience and building up aerobic activity and things, but they're going to get more of the top-down mechanism aim. So we aim our practice for what the presentation seems to be, and it changes as they go. So that gives me a place to start. And this is true regardless of the human in front of me. That's how we treat humans with pelvic pain. Um, so how important is it that we look at these things? Well, it involves everything. It involves their beliefs and their expectations and, and their hopes about what they can do. It involves their endocrine system and the neuroimmune responses in their body. It involves how the limbic system in their brain is functioning. It involves how ramped up the lamina 2 of their spinal cord is. I do not tell my patients all these things 
but I need to know them. I need to understand the process um, so that I can help them figure out a plan that will get them better. And ultimately, what I think it comes down to is how much do all of those things affect and um, change the way the person feels about themselves? What matters the most to them? Because if I can address the program to address the things that matter the most to them, I'm going to have a higher success rate. And if I do it in a way where they can see the success, I will have a higher success rate. So um, one of the things my patients need to understand is pain as a very protective, positive thing. It is supposed to be something that stops us from stepping on sharp objects or putting our hand on a hot stove. Um, or if your shoe's too tight that you know and you stop wearing that shoe and you get something that fits you better. Pain has a place in our life. Uh, but it is not meant to be sustained when the tissues are fine and, and the stove isn't hot and your shoe fits well. It shouldn't hurt anymore. But sometimes it does. And sometimes our nervous systems get so sensitized that just seeing something can make us hurt. That is so easy to see in pelvic health because a patient will come in and say it's a woman who has uh, dyspareunia where it hurts when she has sex, anything entering the vagina. And I show her a dilator, which is a, a graded set of uh, the first ones, probably about a little bit smaller than my finger. And I show her one of those and looking at it makes her symptoms come on. That happens and it's totally real. Now, I'm nicer than I used to be because what I used to do when I was first exposed to the concept of top-down regulation of that was then I would sort of test it and I'd pick out the largest one, which is sometimes like about that big around. So if looking at something the size of my pinky makes you hurt in your vagina, gentlemen, you can use your testicles as your example, um, looking at this probably is going to make you do something like withdraw or, or change your body habit. I don't do that anymore. I'm not mean that way anymore. Um, but that, that's a, and then I can tell them. I see that seems to have made you uncomfortable looking at it. How cool is that, that your body's protecting you so well, you are protecting you so well, that just the thought of putting that thing that's sitting over there into you reproduced your pain. And I bet it made the tissues swell up a little bit. And if we could do a fancy test and do a histological study, there would be more pro-inflammatory mediators there than there were before you looked at it. That's pretty amazing. It's also unnecessary in that instance because you're looking at something that's on a table that's not actually going to go in you. So if your body's protecting you from that, imagine what it does when you wake up in the morning and you think, I am going to be hurting by, by noon and I have to take my kid to his soccer game. So just knowing that is you're probably already starting to run some pro-inflammatory mediators and all those things that make us more likely to hurt later. Our thoughts can drive these responses. It doesn't mean I'm in the clinic trying to be a psychologist. I am not. I just want to understand it and help people see how your expectation of something can make you hurt. And if it's true, your expectation from something can also make you not hurt. And I want to switch it. It's called an inflection point, where you go from having one sort of predict prediction to it, the opposite. 
And I'm trying to switch that in my patients to use these fantastic mechanisms as a way to help people get better faster, I hope, and stickier to where they believe it and they, they trust it and they can reproduce it on their own. So we do that through very practical application of this beautiful neuro, nervous system that we have. Uh, and we work on treatment approaches that help the patient to feel better. Katie talked this morning about the words we use and how that can be devastatingly hard for a person to believe that they can't bend over. What if the words we use can make people believe that they're more resilient than they think they are? It's pretty easy because most people by the time they come to me think they aren't resilient at all. So more can be just a one point on a 10 point scale. But every little step we take like that gives them a higher probability that they're gonna be okay. So what if the treatment approaches you choose are laden with non-threatening, reinforcing techniques? And that's where my, I'm not gonna do anything that hurts you promise comes to my patient. I'm certainly not gonna do anything that harms you, I never have, but I'm also not gonna do anything that hurts you because I don't think we have to practice pain in order to get better. And I think that if a patient's coming to my clinic because of pain, and the techniques that I'm using hurt, I can't make that make sense. And given when, that I know that I can get things moving and I can get them moving in ways that don't hurt, I think it's nice. Um, and since they still get better, then I'm like, hey, it's nice and you're still getting better. So I think that is a double win. Um, so movement, words, touch, that is supportive of the hope that the person can be okay. If you touch yourself on your arm, it should not hurt. I went yesterday and got a spa treatment and did the hammam thing. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. It was like almost an hour of feeling absolutely spectacular. And, and I was thinking while I was doing that, that this is what I tell my patients. Find something that is so pleasurable that you're gonna remember it. And that happened to you, whether that's a feeling or um, uh, you were with someone that just made you that happy. And remember that, because those times when you're doing something that I'm gonna ask you to do, like walk an extra two minutes today, and it's hard, you need to have something to remember to say, wait, this body can do that. This body can still feel good. And I know because it was yesterday and I just did this thing. So we use all of that. You know, use the education to tie it in, to give them that hope that they can get better. So I'm talking about all of the positives but they have a dark side to that. Because if there's positive, then there's usually also negative. There are threats that people have identified. And what we know from the pain system is that it's protective from what? It's protective from things that you find threatening or that you imagine will be threatening. Um, whether that's people that are gonna yell at you and make you sad, or people that are going to hurt you physically or emotionally. We work with some patients who are exceptionally challenged uh, with lifestyles and life settings that are either physically or emotionally damaging. Um, so I mentioned that I, I work with urologists and gynecologists and urogynecologists. I also make sure that I have psychologists and sex counselors available because that also is not my role. But I need to be able to identify what threats are bothering you and get you to the health professional that can help you. 
sometimes what if the threat that you're experiencing for your pelvic pain is your office chair? What if when you go to work and you look at your chair, your butt hurts? You haven't even sat in it yet. Um, there's, there's actually ways to desensitize that. Uh, and I, that's part of what we try and find in the clinic is let me figure out all the things that scare you. Um, what is threatening? What makes you think is hard? And I want to find them. Maybe not all at once, but certainly one at a time, and knock them out and make them non-threatening or find a way around it. So my goal is to identify the threats and then one by one get rid of them. And we know, we know in pelvic health, and it was mentioned in all the great talks on pelvic health yesterday, is that there is a lag between the onset of someone's symptoms and them getting to care that's helping them. Um, there were different statistics. Well, I, I like these because somewhere between 18 months and 12 years, that on a confidence scale, it's like, it's a really long time. The, the data, depending on who you read and what country you read it from, is varied. And on what diagnosis you're reading about is varied. But even if we take 18 months, I still think that's too long. I think three months is an awful long time to hurt. And that's when you switch from acute pain to chronic pain. So what if we could catch these people before they get chronic? Could we change some things sooner so that, one, they cost less to society, two, it costs less to their effort and their challenges that they're having in life, and, and we can catch people and turn them around before 12 years of pain. Um, and it, it's not that they can't get helped before that 18 months or 12 years, it's that they haven't found help. And they may have found a lot of providers that didn't notice or didn't ask. Uh, I know I have a, a, a sample bias with this because I know one who has no pelvic pain and has a fantastic sex life just walks in my office to tell me about it. That, so I only talk to people that have problems and I only talk to the people who weren't helped by the previous person that they saw. So there are people out there with no problems, and there are people out there that went to practitioners and got better. Um, I don't get to see them. So my data set is people that didn't get better. Uh, it can take up to many, many years of people being told they don't have problems, people being told that testicular pain will never get better, or you'll just have to stay on antibiotics forever, or we'll give you Botox shots once a, however often. Um, or women should just accept that they're going to hurt when they have sex and have wine, um, still being told, uh, and, or, or take some medicine and just do it anyway. And, and that's still happening. I am sure it's not anyone in this room. Um, so the, the diagnosis of who are we going to see with that, it's all over the map. Fitness levels is all over the map. Um, it's, this is, pain is not because you're weak. Pain is not because you're old. Um, pain is not because you did something wrong, but that sometimes is the message people get. So a little bit of a case study. Um, this lady came to me. She had been to some other therapists. Um, she, she came to me because it hurt for her to have sex. And that was the original, I'm going to go see you because I need to keep my marriage together and I can't I can't take it anymore. I have been having sex for a while and it, and it hurt. And then, so then she stopped and went to care. And then this happened, which is um, 
she'd, she'd had robotic laparoscopy. Um, they ended up taking out that uh, little bit at the very end of the introitus and sewed it back up. The surgeon does a beautiful, beautiful stitch. It had healed really well. She hurt really bad. Um, he also did uh, remove some body parts that she didn't think were going to get removed, and she never gave permission for that. And um, when she asked at the end of it, when she came out and was told of what had happened, she, he said to her, well, you would have given me approval if you'd been awake. So I took that as implied consent. Um, I would love to say that this was 29 years ago when I started in PT, but it wasn't. It was this century. Um, the, oh, we can tell new, oh, so last century jokes, but not for this. Um, so she had significant C-section scarring. She doesn't, she, she doesn't heal well after a scar. It's not quite keloid, but it's not, it's not a nice, flat, mobile scar uh, on her belly. And the, uh, for the repair of diastasis and for the C-section repairs, and then she has a rare blood disorder, and she got an infection, and that caused some problems with her belly. None of those problems occurred with the surgery that she had just had done before she came to me. Uh, she'd been to a variety of therapists and was under the impression that she would never be able to return to her prior level of function because, um, so when they, they did the complete hysterectomy and they put a, a vaginal cuff. She went online and looked at vaginal cuff surgery outcome and found horrendous pictures of people's organs coming out of their vagina. Um, and people saying, if you have sex, it's going to tear through that cuff because the penis will just poke a hole in it. And I, I know, <laughs> we have a, a doctor in the audience who knows that is biologically impossible um, to have happen. Or what the other thing she found out and was told by a healthcare professional is sometimes they just disrupt all by themselves. So what that left her with was a thought that um, sex will always be painful and dangerous. Um, that it can rupture her surgery, that things are going to fall out of her body, and that her scars would always hurt. Her scar from the surgery that the surgeon did did not hurt. She thought it did. So think about that for a little bit. It's, it's basically at the opening to the vagina. She couldn't see it. The muscles inside, or the superficial pelvic muscles inside, uh, were so tight and so scared, which is what they do, um, that when she touched inside the vagina, it hurt. She wasn't touching the scar. What she said was, I hurt because the surgery happened, and I hurt because my scar hurts. So I had to get a mirror and show her and say, you can touch this part, and it's fine. That didn't make the other stuff not hurt. But it took one thing off the pile of what's wrong. Um, you can anticipate that she's a little angry at that surgeon um, and has lost a lot of trust in the healthcare system. Um, she's really angry that the pain that she had didn't go away after the surgery and that the piece of her that they took off didn't make her pain go away. Um, I share a little bit of that frustration because I think that perhaps if I'd seen her before she had surgery, maybe she wouldn't need surgery, but that's probably my ego talking, and we don't know. Uh, 
but with her, so, so there's this complicated person who has lost faith in the healthcare system, and she has reasons to have lost faith, uh, who has some pain and some problems and some disability and some beliefs that she can't get better. Reinforced by the internet, um, the first thing I did was say, please stop looking up bad things on the internet. Like I told her I would rather she look at porn than look at pictures of organs falling out of bodies. But, um, but at that point in her, it, she has a fantastic sense of humor, so I could get away with that. Um, at that point in her uh, level of function, the thought of sex made her hurt. So, so maybe watching porn wouldn't be a good idea yet. Um, but what I asked her, and it's what I ask all my patients, is, is tell me how it all gets started, and you have to be quiet and listen. But also, how will you know when you're better, and, and what does better mean? Because I want them to give me the goalposts so, and how we're going to measure them. Because me saying, hey, these tissues are moving great, and I can't reproduce your pain, but she can't walk to the park with her kids and is afraid to put clothes on because she's afraid it's going to rub on skin and make her scar come apart. Um, those don't match. So I might think, wow, you're really making progress, and she'd think, I'm no better, because I was using my version of better, not hers. Um, and that's a, those are two questions I learned my first job out of PT school a million years ago from an occupational therapist who also taught me to stop doing things for people, um, because we were working on a uh, stroke and head injury ward and I would go, we'd go see if they could walk outside if they were safe to go home and I kept pushing elevator buttons and he finally told me one day that my role was to keep my hands behind my back and my mouth shut because I kept answering the questions for patients about where we should turn right or left and pushing the buttons and it was messing up the OT's cognitive functional tests. Um, I kept passing them though so I was happy. Uh, so, so what we're aiming for here is a little bit of empathy, a lot of empathy and to help people's beliefs change. So I said I promised I really like the pain catastrophizing scale, and the why is because it breaks down into three parts. And you don't have to be able to read all that, because I'm going to show you the pertinent ones in a bit. Um, but helplessness and rumination and magnification. She scored four out of four on every single point. The rule with the pain catastrophizing scale is if you're over 30, it's considered high risk for this persisting being very hard to budge, and also really high risk for suicide. Um, so helplessness being a key indicator for suicide. Rumination is when they're stuck in that circle of thought. They just keep going over in it all the time. And magnification, where you're making it worse than it is, um, and have lost the confidence to find a way out of that. So I use the pain catastrophizing scale to break it down into the subscales, and then help me figure out what to do about it. So the initial part with her was not a lot of musculoskeletal treatment, although I was worried about what can I do and what can I teach you to do to give you some relief of this pain and make you feel good. So it was all very feel-good manual therapy. But she had a lot of work on um, working on magnification of reframing what pain is. Pain is protective instead of pain meaning there's something wrong in those tissues. If it's been over three months, it's probably not something wrong in those tissues. The scars are still going to be there, but scars don't have to hurt. Um, and I proved that to her. And then education for self-efficacy, which is huge. We address the meditation, like call it meditation light. I am not trained in teaching people meditation, but I can give them some skills. We have some on our website. 
that we've had some people make for us that are available to our patients. They have free access to those um, positive affirmations. But also got her doing some things for social support. Part of her homework was do something that you enjoy every day. Do something that makes you happy. And that was her hardest homework because she couldn't remember what made her happy. Um, so for her, I did what I, uh, I used to work a lot with the military and what was called the Army Family Team Building. And we would teach what turned into resilience programs. Um, and one of the things that you would do for someone who's so stressed out and couldn't think, and their Army life is hard, um, is we have write down all the things that used to that you can believe and remember used to make you happy. Put them in a jar, and then every morning I want you to pick one, and see if you can work that into your day. So I made her do that because she couldn't she couldn't come up with a path. So I was like, fine, we'll make this very operational. Write them down, stick them in a jar, and pick one out every day. Um, so she did that, uh, and then we worked a little bit on also CBT light, and I gave her some resources and gave her a reference of some therapists in the area that work with CBT. Um, those are, are principles we follow, not necessarily protocols, and, and they are based on an idea to get people feeling like they can own it, giving them ownership of it all. Brought the team together, like I mentioned, not in a, a one place, but me taking the time to talk to the doc, talk to the psychologist, had permission from the patient, ask about her diet, do you need someone that can help you come up with a better diet um, than what you're doing, and really tried to get people working together. Uh, I'm lucky, I work in an area where that's easy to do. I know that that's not true all around the country, but Chicago proper is an amazing place. I've lived in places like Leesville, Louisiana, and there that could not have happened there. Uh, we'd be Skyping people in Houston. Um, but so we, we got a team together and, and just maximized the message that she could have resiliency and support and she could get better. We worked a little bit on things like graded imagery and graded exposures. Remember that if you look at a dilator and that makes you hurt, well, one of the things you can do for that is to, to have a discussion about nothing's touching you um, and can you look at this and, and relax your pelvic floor and do some diaphragmatic breathing and turn that pain down or off. Um, it's protective, but it doesn't need to be in this instance. Can we, can we make it go away? Uh, so she did some imagery around the things she was afraid of. She did no imagery of looking at Google. Um, so I took one of those noxious things away from her and, and had her work on some imagery of positive thoughts and expectations. And then we switched to graded exposure. So you go from, can I look at this dilator to can I actually put this inside of me and have it not hurt? So it's not how much can I endure, it's can I do this without it hurting. I'm going to find that edge of pain and push it back, not just sit with it for a long time. So we did some graded exposure to that. We also did some graded exposure to movement. I found out she loved dancing. Um, I learned from her some dance moves that I didn't know humans could do. Um, and that was her favorite thing. It's like a hyper-twerking thing. Um, and that was what she really loved. So she did that for a progressive number of minutes every day, and she got her kids doing it too, so it hit multiple points. It was movement, it was fun, it was something she loved, and, and it was social. Um, she got a progressive load with walking uh, was what we chose, and then that expectation violation of she thought these things would hurt. I set out to prove her wrong, and then we make that harder. 
and sort of remove what's the, called the safety signals to get, I'm going to make this really, really safe for you, and it's okay. You thought it wouldn't be. Fantastic. I'm going to start taking away these things that make it really, really safe for you and show you that it's still okay. Uh, and, then, and that's all done with coaching and motivation and talking to her and lots of emails. I let my patients email with me. Not many of them have my cell phone, but a couple of them do. Um, the ones that I am afraid are going to kill themselves end up with my cell phone number. Um, and they, always, they also always usually have their doctor's cell phone number because it's real, and we're all trying to make that not happen. Um, so you can think after that comment that, that I think that this population is really hard to work with, but I might be a little warped in my head because I really, truly love it. And, and the more complex the pelvic pain issue, the more I feel like digging my feet in and saying, we can change this. We just have to be creative and find a way and get the right support team to change this. Um, so one, one of the self-awareness exercises that's really fun to do and is, is good for teaching patients that this, while it might be very complex, is not really complicated. Um, and the, what you're gonna do about it is actually quite simple, is close your eyes and touch your finger, your thumb to your little finger. It's a really complex thing that happened when you did that, and you have an immediate feedback of whether you got it right or not, and I can't see because the lights, but open your eyes if they aren't already. Um, but to do this, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens, but what usually gets forgotten is there's also some really cool stuff that happens to make those not also go. So that's a facilitated movement. There's some motor plans that run, and. Um, very cool things with your premotor and motor cortex and sensory cortex and the cerebellum. But also there's like a don't go message to these fingers. And I use that to explain to my patients is when you've been hurting a lot, everything's going. You've sort of lost your how do you do selective activity. So she would go and do that and be like, you know, right, I can do that. I can touch one finger and the other fingers don't go. I can lift an arm and my belly doesn't have to contract. Can I lift a leg? Nope, everything contracts. And then she'd go back to this again and be like, wait, bodies do this, because that's what I keep telling them. <laughs> bodies do this, you can do this. And she'd go and try and pick her leg up and not contract everything to do that. She was so scared to move because she thought things were gonna fall out. Um, that she was hyper guarding in every lower extremity movement. So we worked just repetitively on sensory awareness and selective relaxation. Okay, okay, so two months later, um, these are her scores. Instead of a four, she went down to two on can't stand it anymore and the intensity of her pain, but the one that makes me the most happy is that her I feel I can't go on was zero, which means we won. Now she was still on a greater than 30 on her pain catastrophizing scale, but we had more things we could do. We just made the goalpost further down the road. So I hope that makes sense. That's kind of a be nice, be kind, identify what the person can do, and that's my last one for you, of identify the expectations or threat, and then get them better. And I think that we can for all, any human we see. So thank you, and they told me I'm done.